I want to start this morning, it is Easter morning, with a little bit of a, a confession, and that is I probably spend too much time following the news, what's going on in, in, the, in the headlines. I don't know about you, um, Facebook is aware of this bad habit of mine, um, so, so much so that now like my watch is always buzzing with breaking news of this, that, or the other. Sometimes it's really important breaking news, sometimes it's just a bit random, like why are you telling me that? I don't really need to know this information. I know I can switch off that feature at any time, you're probably thinking why don't you do that, but it's a bad habit, it's a hard habit to break. Um, I don't know if you can remember just one headline that may have captured your attention uh, this week. There was a few. Uh, maybe it was that, that big ship in the Suez Canal finally getting unstuck. That was pretty exciting. Um, or maybe it was the lockdown in Brisbane. It seems like that was ages ago, but it was just a few days ago that that was happening. Um, maybe it was the announcement about the Women's World Cup coming to Adelaide. I'm excited about that. Um, I was preparing a message on Thursday, and there was a few other headlines uh, coming across the feed on Thursday. There's a couple new products that my watch told me were coming out. One was uh, Vegemite-flavored milk, um, coriander-flavored cookies, and then I remembered what day it was, and I thought, oh, okay, it's not exactly breaking news, it's more like fake news, um, the day when you have to question everything, April Fool's Day. Um, Last year, I think it was Good Friday, it was on April Fool's Day, or maybe it was a couple years ago. Um, as far as I know, April Fool's Day wasn't around back in the day when Jesus uh, walked the earth. But uh, if you try to put yourself in the place of the people who were there, uh, the people who knew Jesus, who'd walked with him, talked with him, and the first time that they heard the news, the first time they got that breaking news, the tomb is empty. The body is gone. What would they have thought? Surely they would, their first thought wasn't, oh, he's risen from the dead. They're going to be thinking all sorts of other things. Somebody stole the body. It's a prank. Um, we don't know what's going on. Um, especially when you've got a group of people coming and saying, actually, it, an angel appeared to me and told me that the body was gone, that he had risen from the dead. That sounds even more like fake news. Uh, but once it started to sink in that the tomb was, in fact, empty, uh, once more and more people were reporting that they had seen him alive, it, it, that day became the day of questioning everything. Well, what does this mean? You know, Jesus may not have led an army to defeat the Romans, but if he defeated death itself, then the centurion was right. Truly, this man was and is the Son of God. Uh, American pastor Tim Keller has made this point a lot over the years, and, and here he is. This is his latest book um, on the hope of Easter. He says this, and I think I've got the quote up on the screen. He says, if you are looking at Christianity, you got to start by looking at Jesus's life as it's shown to us in the Gospels, and especially at the resurrection. That's where you start. That's where you start your investigation. Don't begin, as modern people do, by asking yourself if Christianity fits who you are. If the resurrection happened, then there is a God who created you for himself, and ultimately, yes, Christianity fits you, whether you can see it or not. If he's real and risen, then just like Paul, even though he had none of the answers to any of his questions, you'll have to say, what would you have me do, Lord? The tomb is empty. 
Jesus is Lord over death and the grave. And this isn't just any breaking news. This is the news that changed everything. It's the ground zero of all understanding, all reality, that his resurrection body is now physically in heaven. If you're not yet convinced, I hope you'll hear me out um, because there's lots of good reasons to believe that it's true. It's not just wishful thinking. It's certainly not an April Fool's prank. Jesus is alive and it's changed everything. Faith in Jesus. Christianity isn't wondering if it's going to work out in the end. It's believing that the Lord of everything and then putting your full confidence in him. Believing that he will lead you into joy, into meaning, into salvation, into the very presence of the one who created you. Uh, This morning, I want to show you three implications of the resurrection of Jesus. Three things that are true because he's alive, because the tomb is empty. These three things are true. Number one, because he lives, you have, we all have full access to God. Number two, because he is alive, because he lives, we must follow him. And number three, because he lives, every reason to fear is gone. Come with me to the final chapter in the good news about Jesus, according to our good friend Mark, and let's uh, believe again the news that changes everything. I'm going to pray, and then when I do, when I finish, I'm going to read from Mark chapter 15, starting at verse 42 to the end of the book. But first, let's, let's pray together. Lord, thank you for your word that we're about to read this morning. Lord, I pray that as we hear your words, that you would open our ears, open our understanding, our, our minds, our eyes to, to see you, to know you, and to be satisfied in you. Lord, believing that you are the one who defeated death. You are the way of, of hope, of, of life, of salvation. Lord, give us eyes to see and ears to hear this morning, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Mark chapter 15, starting in verse 42. I'm going to read down to the end of chapter 16. When it was already evening, because it was the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the Sanhedrin who was himself looking forward to the kingdom of God, came and boldly went to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Pilate was surprised that he was already dead. Summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he had already died, and when he found out from the centurion, he gave the corpse to Joseph. After he bought some linen cloth, Joseph took him down and wrapped him in the linen. Then he laid him in a tomb, cut out of the rock, and rolled a stone against the entrance to the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, were watching where he was laid. Chapter 16. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary mother, the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so they could go and anoint him. Very early in the morning, on the first day of the week, they all went to the tomb at sunrise. They were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone from the entrance to the tomb for us? Looking up, they noticed that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. When they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side. They were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he told them. You are looking for Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they put him. But go tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you to Galilee. You will see him there, just as he told you. They went out and ran from the tomb, because trembling and astonishment overwhelmed them, and they said nothing to anyone, since they were afraid." 
I said last week uh, that Mark 15 is the steepest part of the climb towards the climax of the story, the top of the roller coaster. Um, for the brief moment there, you're at the top. You, 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 everything kind of stops, and you, you look down uh, the other side before you start that plummet down towards the bottom. And it, that's where the Gospel of Mark leaves us at the top. The ending is the view from the top. It's an invitation to follow Jesus, the risen king, the one who conquered death. And so this is the question he wants you to ask. What is it going to look like to follow Jesus now? Does it mean that everything is just going to be smooth sailing from here on out, that you won't face any resistance, that you're just going to be piling up the winds one after the other? Because if your life is similar to mine, then that's not the way it's going to be. We all face resistance. We all struggle with things inside of ourselves as well as things outside of ourselves. We don't always live like we believe the gospel is true. We don't always feel like the gospel is true. And that's why it's so important when you're at the top to look around and, and get your bearings, to remember what is true. And the first thing he wants you to see from the top is that the resurrection guarantees access to God for those who believe. Because Jesus lives, everyone who believes has access to God. Where do we see this in the text? Well, there's an early indicator back in chapter 15, verse 38. As soon as Jesus takes his last breath, it says that the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now, if you were standing there that day at the cross as Jesus died, you would not have known about the temple curtain. You wouldn't have seen it. You wouldn't have heard it. So why does Mark include that detail? Well, he includes that detail because he wants you to understand that it's significant. It's a symbol. It represents something that is true. Jesus was the once-for-all sacrifice for sins. See, the temple was a place where day after day, year after year, People would bring animals and they would be sacrificed for sins. That you, that the person giving the sacrifice, offering the sacrifice would be acceptable to God, would be forgiven of their sins, and they could have access then to God. The curtain that tore in two from top to bottom was the curtain that separated the sort of the outer portions, the outer rooms, the outer courts of the temple from the inner portion of the temple. And that inner portion was called the most holy place. That was represented the presence of God himself. And you might remember this when we went through the book of Hebrews. Only one man could go in there one time a year and offer a sacrifice. Only one man in the whole nation, among the whole people of God, could actually enter into the presence of God and live. But that curtain... You see, when Jesus sacrificed himself, that curtain tore. Meaning that no longer is it just one man. No longer is it just the priest. No longer is it just men. No longer is it just Israelites. But anyone who believes now has access into the very presence of God. Listen to the writer of Hebrews. You might remember this is from chapter 10, verses 19 to 22. He writes, therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have boldness to enter the sanctuary, 
That was the restricted area of the temple. To enter the sanctuary through what? Through the blood of Jesus. He has inaugurated for us a new and living way through the curtain. That is his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Jesus opened up the way through the curtain for you to be in the presence of your creator. What about people like me? What about people like me who still struggle with sin? Surely I can't be in the presence of God and at the same time be struggling with sin. But you see, sinners like me are the reason that he came. The reason that he shed his blood. The reason he gave up his life. So that I can get close. You can get close. We can go in and we can examine. We can, you can ask your questions. You can bring your doubts. He will never turn you away because you're covered by the blood of his son. And this message isn't just about the cross. It's about the resurrection. So let's look a bit further. Uh, in verse 37, Jesus breathes his last. He, he dies. And to the very end, from that moment till the very end of the book of Mark, you might notice that none of the other sort of main characters appear. The disciples are MIA. So who, who do we see in the story? Well, there's this Gentile centurion who would not have been allowed in the temple at all. And he is the very first one post Jesus dying to confess that Jesus is the son of God. And then we see a group of women Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, and a woman called Salome. Uh, these women were also disciples of Jesus. They were patrons of Jesus. It says they took care of him. Um, but up until this point in the story, they were invisible. We don't know anything about them. And then there's Joseph of Arimathea. He's one of the religious leaders. He's a, it says he's a member of the Sanhedrin, that same group of people who had condemned Jesus to death. But Mark tells us that he, among them, was looking forward to the kingdom of God. He wanted access. He wanted in. He was obviously a man of means, and so he offers what he has, which is a, a large family tomb, uh, as a resting place for Jesus' body. And then the three women reappear. They appear as caretakers of the body of Christ. They're the first ones, the first people to hear the news that Jesus is alive. The first ones to report the news. They're the first witnesses, the first evangelists, the first preachers of the gospel or these group of women who had been invisible. See, all of these people now have access. All of them would have been prevented and prohibited from the temple. They all now have access not only to the presence of God, but to the ministry of God. Because Jesus is risen, because he lives, every single one of these real people has access to the kingdom and to the king himself because he died and rose again. They have all, every one of them has been given the right to become a son or a daughter of God. Violent, mocking military men, they can come in if they believe. Proud religious men, they can come in. Women who were invisible and insignificant by every cultural measure in that day, they can come in. The entrance to the kingdom is thrown open as wide as the entrance to the tomb itself. Look now at how this unfolds metaphorically in the text. Verse 3 says, they were saying, this is the women, saying to one another, who will roll the stone away from the entrance uh, to the tomb for us? 
You know, that stone in that moment represents the way things are. It's just how it is. Do you ever say that to yourself when you're looking at particular circumstances that are not ideal? You go, well, it's just not ideal. That's just how it is. That's what the women saw when they thought about the stone. They wanted to get in there and anoint Jesus' body with, uh, with spices and oils. But if you remember Mary back in chapter 14, she'd already done that. Um, they weren't in the headspace to think that, you know, his death might not be permanent. But in verse 4, we see that little phrase, looking up. Looking up. Stop for a moment. What were the women doing? They were coming to the tomb, grieving, looking down. They weren't expecting to see anything that would change their grief into joy. They were looking down. But then in a moment, their reality came face to face with his power. Their reality came face to face with his power. Looking up, they noticed that the stone, which was large, had been rolled away. And when they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe, sitting on the right side, looking up. They noticed, and then look what they did. They entered in. They entered in. Because when your reality meets the power of God at that moment, you enter into his presence. That's what he wants for you. That's why he did this. That's why Jesus was raised by the power of God, that you might enter the presence of God. Because if you believe, you have full access to God. Anyone, no matter, no matter how much you're looking down, no matter how big the stone is in front of you, whatever that is, no matter how angry you might be, no matter how indifferent you might be, no matter how many times you've broken your word or how many times other people have broken their word to you, the tomb is empty and his power is enough. Draw near to him and the risen Jesus will draw near to you. It's a promise. The second implication or the truth of the resurrection is similar to the first. Because he lives, anyone who believes has access to him. We've got backstage passes, no restrictions. But, you know, we're not just Jesus groupies. We're not just fanboys or fangirls. He calls us to be followers. Look at the way the angel gives instructions to the women at the tomb. He says, don't be alarmed. You're looking for Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He's not here. See the place where they put him. But now you go. Go tell his disciples and Peter. He's going ahead of you to Galilee. You will see him there just as he told you. Now, I'll come back to the part about not being alarmed in a minute. It's just kind of what happens every time you see an angel show up in the Gospels. The person who sees the angel gets alarmed. It's, it's kind of a normal human response. But let's break down what the angel says. He, the first thing he does is he grounds them in reality. He grounds them in objective truth. This really happened in history. Jesus really was crucified. His body really was dead. His body really was here in the tomb, but now it's not. He's risen. The Christian faith, your faith, is based on historical facts. It's not based on feelings. It's not, you know, every, those, those, those facts change everything about reality and your reality. Because he is risen, your sin has been covered. It's been atoned for. And you have peace with God. Because his, he's risen, his spirit now lives 
in you and you have the power to change because he is risen. None of the work that he's given you to do now is in vain. Whether it's crunching numbers, I don't know what you do through the week. Maybe it's that. Maybe it's nailing timber or changing nappies. Everything that's done for the glory of the risen king has meaning. Everything is essential work. All of it. And know this, because he rose on the third day like he said he would, every sin that's committed against you, every injustice that you've suffered will be paid for and made right, either in part now or in full when he returns. These three days don't just change history, they change your story. What else does the angel do for this group of women here? After he grounds them into the objective truth of what happens, he reminds them of the word of God. He says, these things aren't random. They're happening according to plan. Jesus said these things would happen. Look at verse 7. He says, Jesus is going to Galilee. You're going to see him there. How do you know? How do we know? Because he told you that that was the plan. When? When did he, when did he say that? Well, you've got to go back to chapter 14. He's talking to Peter in that moment and tells Peter that Peter's going to deny him. And he said this, he said, but after I have risen, I will, what, go ahead of you to Galilee. So what the angel here is not preaching anything, he's not telling them anything new. He's pointing them back to the word of Jesus, pointing them back to the word of God. Because the word of God is always reliable. Even if we don't understand it perfectly, you know, the bulk of it is right here. We we are able to, to grasp it. I've often heard it said that the problem that we have with the Bible is not, that, not the parts we don't understand. The problem we have with the Bible are the parts we do understand. And they come face to face with our resistance and our wanting our own way. The reason Jesus' followers deserted him is not because they didn't understand him. It's because they finally came to understand that following Jesus is costly. It's risky. Dying on a cross is uncomfortable and unappealing. It's unideal. He said, if you want to follow me, if you want to know the power of the resurrection, then you be prepared to share in the fellowship of my suffering. But because he lives, that's the only road that we've got to walk. You either follow the man who defeated death or you face death on your own. Those are the two choices that we're left with. Uh, Let me point out one other thing here. The angel didn't just tell these women who are still grieving and very afraid and confused to go off on their own and read their Bibles. He didn't say, you go sort yourselves out. Now he says, go find Peter and the disciples and tell them what you've seen. Tell them the tomb is empty. Following Jesus is never a solo project. I I say that a lot, and we see it here right at the very beginning. God's will is to get the witnesses together in one place. Jesus doesn't just appear to isolated individuals, and and even when he does like he does with Mary Magdalene and later Paul, he sends them immediately to get together with other believers. God's will from day one is to gather women and men together as family, to encourage one another, to learn and obey and follow together, 
to support each other, to love each other, to bear each other's burdens, to cheer each other on. That's God's will from day one. Listen, friends, if, if you're a follower of Jesus, then you, you've got to be a gatherer. You've got to belong to a group of disciples of Jesus whose aim is to know him and to make him known. And if you're not regularly gathering with other believers under the authority of those who he has put it, set aside to preach and, and teach the word of God, then you're not really following Jesus. You're following your own plans and ambitions. Because he lives, we must follow him and, and we must do it together. Jesus is alive. The tomb is empty. And that means everybody who believes has full access to him and, and to his joy. It also means that those of us who believe must follow him alongside other brothers and sisters in the family of faith. The last implication I want you to see is that because Jesus is alive, because he lives, all our reasons to fear are gone. Um, some of you may be my age, 29, and you might remember that old song from the 1970s, Because He Lives. Uh, because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, uh, all fear is gone. Um, but I don't always feel those words are true. If that's you, you find yourself like me, you find yourself wrestling with fear, wrestling with doubt. Can I, can I show you from this text that you're not alone? The group of women who came to Jesus' tomb to anoint his body, they were doing something to show their love and devotion for the friend they thought was deceased. Um, and when they got to the tomb, in verse 5, they saw the angel and they were afraid. They were alarmed. And I think you would be too. And I would be. Uh, and then look down at verse 8. It says, after the angel told them the good news, and he sends them to share it with Peter and co., Mark writes this. He says, and this is, this is the very last verse that is definitely written by Mark. He says, they went out, they ran from the tomb, because trembling and astonishment overwhelmed them, and they said nothing to anyone since they were afraid. Mark does not write that they ran straight off to Galilee. They ran away. He doesn't write that they stopped being alarmed in that moment. He writes, fear overwhelmed them. He didn't write that they went off to share the good news. He writes that they were silent. And the weirdest thing about this verse isn't that a group of humans are afraid. That's normal. The weirdest thing is that this is the last verse of the gospel, the good news of Mark. What a verse to end on. Why? The final witnesses to the first resurrection, sorry, the first witnesses to the first resurrection in human history, and instead of running out and telling everybody, like all the people that Jesus healed, they couldn't, you couldn't shut them up. They went and told everybody. Well, instead of them going out and Telling everyone they are afraid, they're trembling, they're overwhelmed, and they're silent. This abrupt ending to Mark, it feels so strange. It feels so unfinished, so disappointing even. Like, where's the celebration? Where's the smell of victory? Uh, we know from John's gospel that Jesus appeared to Mary Magdalene at the tomb. Why doesn't Mark tell us that? Well, we don't really know for sure why Mark chose to end his gospel like this. Um, some people in the early days of the church were so confused by this and even disturbed that they added their own ending. You might notice in your English Bible, um, it goes on, verses 9 down to verse 20. Most scholars agree that Mark did not write those words. That's why they're in brackets in your Bible. They were added later. Now, there's nothing in those verses that is untrue or unhelpful. But we know that Mark didn't write those words. They were added later by people who were just a bit concerned that the ending in verse 8 was just not very 
happy ever after. But what if Mark didn't finish by accident, like didn't do this by accident? What if this was on purpose? What if he wanted his readers and you to see this group of women afraid because most of Mark's readers and most of us are wrestling with fear too? We sing because he lives, all fear is gone, when the truth is because he lives, we don't have to be afraid anymore, but we still are. Because death and evil and suffering are still in the world, we get led by our impulses and by our hearts more often than we want to be. So what difference does the resurrection make for us? I mean, it did change everything for this group of women. They, they are silent here, but we do know that they weren't silent forever. They weren't silent for very long. In fact, if you go over and read the same account in Matthew, Matthew 28, verse 8, Here's what Matthew writes about the same scene. He writes, so departing quickly from the tomb, this is the women, same group of women, with fear, so they're fearful, and great joy, they ran to tell the disciples the news. Their fear was significant. And Mark was writing to people who, if you remember, were being persecuted for their faith. Um, for being Christians, and they, the people Mark was writing to were really, really afraid. And so what Mark puts the spotlight on for, in this group of women is their fear. You know, great fear and great joy, great fear and great faith often coexist in the same mind, in the same body. We want to follow Jesus, but we wrestle with fear. This is just real life. We sometimes love other things more than we love Jesus. We sometimes give in to temptation, but then we repent, and Jesus' grace is there to meet us again. His comfort, his compassion, his reassurance, his protection. Because, friends, the power of the resurrection of Jesus never comes from you. Never comes from inside of you. The power to live the life that God wants for you comes from outside of you. You, if you're like me, are prone to be afraid. You're prone to be afraid of death. And so the power you need comes from the one who defeated death, and that wasn't you yet. The power you need is what Paul talks about in Romans 8, verse 11. He says, And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you then he who raised Christ from the dead, listen, will also bring your mortal bodies to life through his spirit who lives in you. Because Jesus died, you've been freed from the penalty of sin. He, he took that for you. Because Jesus rose again, you're free from the power of sin. You can resist because the same spirit that raised him from the dead. The same spirit that conquered death now lives in you. If you're a Christian, every time that you're overwhelmed, every time you're overcome with fear, he is still alive. He's still leading you. He is giving you courage. Every time you give in to the cravings and temptations of the flesh, every time you're distracted by the stuff of earth and the worries of life, Listen, he is still alive. He is still leading you. He is still giving you a heart that believes that he is enough. Every time that you've missed an opportunity that he's given you, listen, he's still alive. He is still leading you. He is still teaching you humility and love. 
And the best part is exactly what he told this bold group of women who showed up to honor the Lord at risk to themselves on that first Easter. He says, I'm going ahead of you. I'm going ahead of you. And when you reach the end of your race, whether that's today or 80 years from now, when you reach the end of your race, you will see him there. You will hear the sound of his voice as he welcomes you into his joy. No more fear. No more doubt. No more distraction. Only grace upon grace upon grace and endless serves of joy. Because he lives, we can face tomorrow. We'll be there with him just as he's with us now. Because he lives on that day, all fear will be gone. That's Mark's word for you. And for us who live in an anxious world, that's good news. Not just breaking news, certainly not fake news, really good news, the best news. So no matter how you're feeling today, you can ask him this question. You can ask him this, what would you have me do? What would you have me do? And then when he answers, let's do it together. Let's pray. God, thank you for the best news, the best news in the world that you conquered death. The tomb is empty. You've gone before us to meet us at the end of the race. And you haven't left us alone. You've given us your spirit, the same spirit that raised your body, the same power that raised you from the dead now lives in us that we can come to you and actually boldly into your presence and ask, what would you have me do, Lord? And, and we can do. We can serve. We can do your will. We can, in some small way, bring your kingdom to earth. Not because we have some power inside of us, but because you've given us your spirit. Oh, Lord, teach us that. Help us to believe that. Help us to go and, and live with resurrection purpose. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.